you have your scriptures turned to that passage. I want to ask you a question like this this week. Um, in the last several weeks, considering this text, I thought had this thought. What if God answered every prayer I prayed for this church? Would we be merely physically healthy, spiritually rich, children all obeying, and everything just like that? Sadly for me, sometimes that might well be the case. And yet I'm convinced by Paul's prayers through the Scripture that those are not the things that are most important. Important indeed. I don't want to minimize that. It's important that we pray for Derek's back, for Wasson and Jennifer as they love on their son and pray for Wesley to be healed, to pray for Miss Jean and her cancer and for you and the difficulties that you face and the ways in which you long to see your children grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord praying for other things that are important and vital. But as you'll note, Paul's prayers, they went beyond that, and so should ours. We shouldn't do less than that, but the Bible calls us to more than that. And so this morning you'll see this type of prayer. And I thought about how would Paul know if his prayers are successful? And I formed it in three questions. The first thing that we could do is ask the members of the church, do you know what God's will is? And I would ask you that. The second thing is you might ask those who know you best, do they appear to be alive? And then thirdly, we would ask God, God, what about what you hear from me in the way of thanksgiving? Those three different categories of people, you being one, those who know you best being the other, and God being the third, could testify as to the success of the prayer that Paul prayed for the Colossians and that we as elders and you as members pray for one another. What in your life? As you think about this, not merely being something, Paul prayed a few, almost 2,000 years ago for a group of people, none of whom you know, in an area probably that most of you are unfamiliar with. So what, what does that have to do with you? Well, everything actually, because it talks about the way in which you pray for one another. And so that's what this morning we want to do together is consider this. And, you know, the goal, as Paul's goal was in the Scripture, I hope as I think in my own life and somewhat being convicted about it, is every time someone speaks or teaches or one of our pastors preaches, you see, the goal of this whole thing is that you would grow up into your head who is Christ. My goal is not that you walk away from this morning's service um, encouraged by merely the way in which I say what I said. But that rather you would be more like Christ in some little way. That you're moving forward in that process. That in the end when we seem in all of His beauty that you've come a long way from where you used to be. Like Mark's father who was faithful. You see, we didn't lose him in that sense. I understand that terminology. We know exactly where he's at. And listen, brothers and sisters, it's not his loss. The Bible says it's his gain. It's our loss. We miss him. We miss his testimony. Mark and his family will miss the loving touch which he provided. But I guarantee you one thing, it's not for him a loss, not one single bit. And you and I, according to this passage of Scripture, ought to think that way as well, right? 
So if you will look with me at first, do you know God's will? You see, that can be a very confusing statement. Over the years in my own life, I've been confused by that very often. What I wanted God to do is give me a list, a sheet, a piece of paper that says, Keith, here's what you're going to do. Some folks even maybe would like to have, here's what you wear. Here's what you eat. That's not what this passage is talking about. But what it does do for you and for me, it helps us understand why this is important. You see, there are some things we want to consider as to why it is important. Sometimes with so much confusion around a subject, we come to the point to think that that's not even possible to know. How can we know what God wills? I'm not even so certain I know what my wife wills. But thankfully, God's not like you and I, right? So why is it important to know what God's will is for you and for me? Because it provides some things, and let me share just a couple of them. And you can probably expand this list in your own life, but these things certainly are important. Clarity. Have you ever enjoyed something that's confusing? What I've noticed in life is that people don't like confusion. I don't either, and neither do you. And the good thing about things is God doesn't either. And so knowing God's will provides for you and me clarity. It provides confidence. You see, when somebody's giving you clear instructions, if you're, as, if you're a father, your children are exasperated according to the Scripture when they don't know exactly what you want and what you're after. When your commands are unclear, your design is confusing. As a boss or as an employee, isn't it confusing when you don't have a job description? You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You're just making the best of it. You're winging it. How much confidence does that give you? Direction, how you know in life how important it is, and you tell your kids life can be aimless unless you have a direction. Wouldn't you like to go on a vacation? You don't really know where you're going. You don't really know how you're going to get there. You just take off. Now, some of you might like that. But for the most part, that's not any fun. It provides for us security. When we know what someone wants, when we know what their will is, there's a sense when we're pursuing it, there's that security that comes in our life. And so for these very reasons and many more, it's very important that you can answer the question correctly, what is God's will? It's the very thing of which Paul prays, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Those words would indicate things like this. It wouldn't be confusing. It wouldn't be without direction. It wouldn't be without in your life. As After you understood it, it would breed confidence in you. And it would do things like this. When a false teacher came along and said, you know what you need? You need to do this or this. You need to wear this kind of clothing. Or you need to act this type of way. Or as a matter of fact, are you even circumcised? You need to get circumcised. That kind of thing was what Paul was dealing with consistently. And you see, brothers and sisters, if you don't know God's will, you'll be like a ship on a sea tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and cunning of men. It's a fact. 
So let's answer this question. What is it not? Well, the Bible's clear about it here, and I'm going to show you in this, what I believe this book helps us understand what God's will is. But let me help you with what it's not. It's not a private, self-focused, particular thing. It's not something like this, fretting about God's five-step individual plan for your life. That's not what he's talking about. What you're going to find is it's not about me, me, me. Most often when the question's asked, it's what I want to know about what God's doing for me. And it's rather something that the church can claim and collectively say it's what God's designed for us. You see. What you need to know is this is not exhaustive. In what sense do I mean that? And I want to share that carefully. Clearly in the Bible, we understand that God's infinite. He has all knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and there's something for certain. If he had a class on everything he knew, you and I wouldn't get it all, right? As far as I can understand, eternity will not even be long enough for you and I to understand much at all as to what God knows. Think of it. As you look at your newborn laying in the crib, I can say this about a newborn, right? We have one with us. You know a whole lot more than that newborn knows. You can be quite confident that you know many, many more things. You're far stronger and can do many, many additional things than that newborn can do. But know this in your life, now and forever, the way in which you look at that newborn is not a speck of which God knows more than you know. And can do more than you can do. Even at the pinnacle of all of your understanding or ability to accomplish anything. When you consider your relationship with God, it's not that you're going to know everything about His will. It's impossible. And I hope you're not discouraged by that. I'm not going to know everything. Ah, forget it. I'm not, I don't want to know anything. That sometimes can be our attitude. I hope it's not yours. So what God's will is here, expressed in Colossians, is not come all of the mind of God. will never grasp all of that. Fix that firmly in your mind. But the things, as Moses understood in Deuteronomy, that were given to men were for men to understand. But they're things that God reserved for himself. Be all right with that. Right? So if I know God's will, I can answer every question everybody asks me. No. Uh-uh. Don't work that way. Moses came to understand that he saw a lot of things. But he came to understand that there was so much more, infinite more, than what he ever understood or knew. And you know what? He was fine with that. Are you? That's so important as we consider God's will. It's not here to satisfy our curiosity. It's not to leave you in a position to make you smart. As if you can say, I know God's will. No one else does, and let me help you out with that. That can be shared in a humble way and helpful way, but certainly the intent of this purpose is not merely to satisfy knowledge which can simply puff up, but in the end motivate love, which is edifying, right? So what is it? Well, I think Colossians makes it clear as to what it is. Paul said this, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is it. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is Paul talking about when he says he prays this way for the church? 
He wants them to have a complete body of information about what God's design is in this world. That's what he's talking about. Paul said, the very reason I'm a minister of the gospel is for this purpose. I go around the known world teaching and preaching in order that what's been hidden, did you notice that, for ages and generations might now be made known. This is what it is. According to the scripture, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the thing that he's speaking about here. God's design and his will in Christ. You see, there's always been from Genesis forward a question mark as to what God was doing in part and peace and through forms that we see in Old Testament writings. God was preparing those people for this moment. You see, Christ in no way was ever an afterthought. He was the forethought of every reason creation exists. This particular book of the Bible, following verse 14 onward to the end of the chapter, indicate just who Christ is as a person and his relationship to creation and his relationship to divinity and his relationship to the church. Read it. It's amazing. As you look around at the world, you see it's not merely that God created this place simply to gather up some people so that he wouldn't be lonely. It's to demonstrate the beauty of his own son that he's enjoyed through all eternity, fellowship unlike we've ever known. You see, everything was created for his son. He's the heir of it all. And everything about it is but for one purpose, to demonstrate his beauty to a world that you and I are a part. It will never change. It has never changed from the beginning. It says this in Colossians 2, 2b through 3a, you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It was on the Mount of Transfiguration and at his baptism that those who stood around understood what Paul here is preaching and speaking about as to God's will. You can imagine being on the mountain. Peter expressed it in his writings. It would certainly have been a, an amazing experience. Carried away in the moment, Peter wanted to do what probably all of us would want to do. Who wants to go back to plumbing after you've been on the Mount of Transfiguration? Ju let's just stay right here. Who wants to go back to sixth grade kids, Jim, after you'd been up there with Moses and Elijah and Jesus? But Peter said some wrong things. But granted, Peter at least said it and God corrected it. What did he say? Let's build three tents. He gets us wrong, Peter. You, you and I would want to build three tents. What's God's will? Is that you would be consumed with the one, not the other two. They're like you, subject to passions and struggles. Their list was maybe as long as your list. 
that Christ had to grab up and nail to Calvary's cross. Moses and Elijah didn't need a tent. What God wanted Peter to know and what he learned through his life and he preached on till his death, there was one tent that was needed. It was for Christ only. At his baptism, there was a voice that came from heaven that said this, This is my beloved son. You listen to him. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy about a prophet that would come that we ought to give our ear to. John the Baptist and others spoke about Christ being that very one. What's God's will? Is that you be enthralled with his son. You'd be amazed by everything he did. You'd be gripped by his passion. And your heart would passionately go out to him in every way. Your life would be spent rummaging through the treasure box, seeing all what's in there. That's what he means right here. That's God's will for us. Listen, and it's not just individual in your own life. You're watching an unfolding event, a movie, if you will. And this is what the end's going to be in everything God's designed for him as he might be preeminent. This is God's will. He sent him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's will. He is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's doing so many things through his son. He's not reconciling just individuals. It's the entire world and the universe. You see, Christ's purposes are not limited to some small scope just of earth alone. He's redeeming the universe, everything in it. One day after he's defeated his last enemy, which is death, he'll take everything that he's conquered and he'll give it to his father. And he'll present you blameless. How is that possible? Because of who he is. This is God's will. You can with confidence leave this building and know this morning, it's without question God's will. You don't have to be confused, aimless, or without security and confidence in it. This is God's will. That's why the testimony of the woman was put in the Bible when she got at his feet and dripped the oil on him and washed it with her hair. You see, we don't know her name. We know what she did. This is God's will. Simeon the Pharisee who knew the scripture missed it all. The woman who lived a life of harlotry gained everything. Why? Because she knew God's will to make much of his son. What of you? What of me? You know that here it's not simply to know God's will, but the transition in this passage is this. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? A very important part of the way in which we know God's will. Wisdom is knowing the true nature of things. It's all through Scripture like that. You see, Proverbs is full of it, and some of you read it every day. Wisdom is knowing the true nature of a thing. If I do X, I get the consequence Y. If I pursue this, I get that. 
And those in Scripture, in particular in Proverbs, who try to live in an opposite way of which God's clearly defined, hate the true nature of things. They want to do X without the consequence of Y. Wisdom is understanding what life is really about. Now, the Bible's clear. There's many in this world who would be considered like Plato or Socrates, and so Paul would, many of the folks to whom he speaks would know about all of those people. And others that we know in our own day, they would be men of wisdom that we would get many accolades from the world. They've seen and they've watched the world as a whole, and... They know a lot about it. So he notes spiritual wisdom and understanding. So wisdom is seeing the true nature of things. And this word understanding means you stack them correctly. You put it in the right place. What's so important about that? It's that you view Christ in his true nature and understanding correctly. And then you order things in the right place. That is so important. That's what he's talking about. But I want you to notice then from that. What flows from it? So you've come to understand God's will in Christ. You're searching through the treasure box. You're passionately in love with him. What you're doing is understanding the true nature of things. You go out in this world and you're not pursuing the stuff in it. You got the treasure box. You're just living your life. You don't hunt for treasure out there. You found the treasure. You're pursuing it. You live life. Like this, the plans of the heart belong to man. You're responsible for that. Go pay your bills, go do work, go to college, get a degree. Go to trade school, learn a trade, do life. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. You're confident in that and you're fine with it. That's what you're doing. And at the same time, you're digging through the treasure box in Christ. Consistently. Continually, your heart's enthralled with it. There's no bottom to it. That's you. So in spiritual wisdom and understanding, you set these things in order. So notice the transition. So as to walk in a manner. Wow. So what do I do with God's will? This is what happens. It's evidence of you being alive. David Owens have, has never buried a man that walked into the... Nursing home, or nursing home, funeral home, have you, brother? You don't bury men who are walking. There's still life in them, right? So what are these things that give evidence that we're alive to a degree? What do others see about us when we know what God's will is? We don't huddle up in our house. Nobody ever sees us. Notice these things that flow from it. Number one, we walk in a manner. In what manner do we walk in? I want to please my wife. I want to please my neighbor. I want to please my boss. I want to please this one. I want to please that one. How fun is that? Is it hard to please everybody? It's real tough. What if you only have to please one person? How much easier is that? Any of you ever worked a job where you had three bosses? Every one of them wants something different? (laughs) How do you please all of them? The best thing to do is figure out which one's the biggest and please him. 
So what do we do here? Man, it's freeing, isn't it? We've got to please one person. And you see what flows from this idea of knowing God's will is that we're going to begin to walk in a manner. And what is God pleased with? Was God pleased with a woman when she saved up everything she had for a year and dumped it on his feet? Simeon wasn't pleased with it. The apostles were confused about it. And goodness, Judas could have stole all that money out of the treasury. He didn't like it. But who loved it? God loved it. God loved it. That woman's name goes on as long as the world exists and the Bible's read. Her testimony remains. God loved it. So my question to you is this. In this life, who are you trying to please? The Bible says, when you know God's will in this way, the goal of this thing is one, to please Him. You're going to walk. The word walk simply means your life, your life as you lived out. You'll see through the Scripture, it's a word used to indicate the way in which you live, your general living. Does this mean that you go find you a place on a rock somewhere so you can escape all of the temptations of the world? Look, I got two things for that. Number one, that's not the way God designed it. Number two, you still couldn't escape them because you're there. Right? Cut off all your arms and legs if you want to. Pluck out every eye you got. I promise you, you'll still sit up there on that rock and think about sin. You will. Isn't that amazing? Every false religion, according to Colossians, never is able to deal with the indulgence of the flesh. That's a fact. But God is in Christ, right? What the law could not do in his weak through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemned it in the flesh. Praise God. So now what do we do? We walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. What does it look like? It's messy. I promise you it's messy. But God's okay with that. He's okay with that. If your kid brings you a piece of candy and he had his little hands in the mud outside, what do you do? You upbraid him because he got his little finger in the mud and he brought you a piece of candy? No, he wants you to enjoy it. It's the nature of the thing, right? What does that mean in life? Is that giving you an excuse for sin? Absolutely not. You live a repenting, passionate pursuit of the beautiful Savior that redeemed you. So here's the deal. You walk and your thought is this. I want to please the Lord. I want to honor Him in what I do. So you might have a thought like this. Will that mean I don't get married? Does that mean I don't eat certain foods? Does that mean I do certain things and... Walk up steps on my knees. You think this is funny? It's what many through the years in their churches heard. They went and did it, and it was empty and aimless, and it was a broken cistern, and they never got a drink of fresh water, and they lived their life like that because some false teacher told them. What am I telling you this morning? This way, brothers and sisters. Go do what you do. And in all of your doing, grow in your love for the Savior. Learn more of who He is. See what makes Him amazing. This is what God delights. You see, what God appreciates 
is that as he watches you sing, even if your voice breaks up, even if it's not on the right key, God loves to see twinned with your voice is your heart where you sing these things with enjoyment and delight. God says in Proverbs 16 and 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Listen to this. But he loves those who pursue righteousness. What a thought. Can you be fully pleasing to him? Have you ever noticed the row of Hall of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews? Have you ever read some of those names? Samson. Woo. I'm glad none of you like him. <laughs> oh, you'd be hard to pastor. Some of you might be, and I just don't know it. But probably will. Moses. What's his resume? Well, he killed a man. Smacked a rock twice and brought God's name into contention before the Jews. Didn't get to go in the land of the promise because of it. You can read all those folks' names. And if you look at their history, here's what you're going to come to. How in the world did they make it? And I hope your thoughts not like this. If they made it, I'm all right. No, that's not the way you think, okay? The fact is that they had faith. And without it, it's impossible to please him. They loved God with everything in them. And all of their faults and failures weren't hidden from those around them. And as a matter of fact, God went ahead and printed them so that you and I could know them several thousands of years later. And it's a reality. And the question must come, how was God satisfied with them? Because of Christ. Right? It's what the Bible says. Because of Christ. And so this morning we must take great confidence in this reality that the way we walk is to please God. We're alive because the things that we bear are the fruits that reflect the reality of us trusting Christ. It speaks of Him. Old Testament and New give clear indication. Fruit simply means the things produced from one's life. That's why I said others can give a good testimony as to the fruits produced from our lives. Look, this is just a byproduct of us knowing God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's not here that Paul says, do these things, though he does unfold it in the rest of the book. Here he's praying this way. They would be fruit-bearing Christians. That they would increase in the knowledge of God. You say, well, you know, I've learned everything I need to learn. Some of you thought that in the first grade. And it's evident, right? Uh, no, I'm teasing. But aren't you glad that in the first grade your teacher doesn't teach you 12th grade math? <laughs> I'm glad of that. But what they do do is begin to prepare you so that in 12th grade you can do the math there. And so life is this way. And so what is your life when you know God's will and you're pursuing Him and you're shuffling through the treasure chest, you're satisfied in Christ, you're growing in an understanding and a knowledge of who He is. Here's what happens. You increase in the knowledge of God. That's so important. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And wouldn't you think that the following statement would be said so that you can speak with tongues of angels? 
so that you can be as strong as Samson, so that everyone can know just how good you are. What does it mean to be strengthened with the power of God? You can build another boat like Noah's. Nope. For what? What's evident to those around you? It's that you're walking. And the way in which you walk pleases the Lord. You're bearing fruit. It's a natural byproduct of your life. You're growing in who God is. And the other item that so identifies your life is that this strength of God comes to you in endurance and patience. And notice this word, with joy. You're doing life like that. You're doing life like this. You bear up under the difficulties. I look across this congregation. There are many difficulties you face. What does knowing God's will have to do with it? This. You don't know God's will. You're confused about it. Here's what. Every trial, you'll be fretting, anxious, and everybody can hear how disgusted you are. What are trials? Well, things that go on in life in general. You can name a list. Every one of you could. All of you youth could name a list. Some of those trials would be your parents. Some of you parents could name a list. Some of the youth would be your trial. Your job, your financial situation, your physical condition, your political realities, the nation in which you live, the future in which you're looking forward to or not looking forward to. All of these things, what conditions, what characterizes those who know God's will, who delight in Christ, who are growing in an understanding of who He is? The testimony to the world is like this. They bear up under, they're patient with, and they're joyful in. All of their trials and struggles and their successes in their life in general. Isn't that amazing? That's what God's power does. Power that's unlike any other in all the world. This is what God's power does. Now notice with me. What would God say? In light of all of this about the way in which you give thanks, it's so vital. You see, if you know God's will, you know it in spiritual wisdom and understanding, what then will be the result of that? So important. You'll notice it in this passage, giving thanks to the Father. What does the Father have to do with it? In your mind, God was reluctant to save, and Jesus had to come and twist his arm. You ever get that thought from the Bible? God's the God of the Old Testament. He loves killing people. Huh. He loves making people miserable. Is that your view? It's the view of many. What's your thought about God in all of this? Isn't it interesting how Paul writes this? Giving thanks to God. For what? Man, why did he create the devil? Why did he do it like this? If I was God, I wouldn't do it like this. Is that your thought? Well, how can you thank one who you don't even agree with the way he did it? Could that maybe be some of the reason that Thanksgiving's so hard for you? But listen, I want to help you. 
This is what the Bible says about him. Giving thanks to God who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in life. Why is it that you even have eyes to see who Christ is? Why? Why is it that you don't continue on in your sin, enjoy it and satisfied there? Why in your darkness do you not continue? Why? What's an important word here, qualified? Fit, maybe in your Bible. It's God that made you fit. You see, this word is sweet to the ears of a true sinner. This word and understanding and this idea that God had chosen you before the world began. Why did he wait to see all the good I did? Because you didn't do enough good. (laughs) I tell you, you didn't do any good. That's the problem. Why wouldn't God choose all them good people? Well, he would. If there was one. And maybe in your heart there was one, that was you. And you're confident you're in Christ because you were good. I tell you, in life frustrating for you, dear sister or brother? In your mind, you started this thing, and in your mind, you got to finish it. That's not the way it works. Giving thanks to God who qualified you. You see, it was the Jew who understood, if you read the Bible rightly in Deuteronomy, that God chose them not because they were more righteous, more wise, more in number, actually just the opposite. Stubborn, fewer, and hard to deal with. God chose them because he loved them. God's qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in life. As you go around your life, what struggle you might face that will be more prominent than this privilege? Preacher, you don't understand my situation. I have a hard time paying my bills. I've got a difficult husband. My wife might even say that. There might be a number of things that you could use as an excuse. But let me ask you. The point of this passage is, as Paul prays for the people, is that this truth would grip you and it would give you a reason above every other to thank God. And not just out of your mouth on a Sunday, but live a life that demonstrates this idea. You're so thankful that God qualified you. How many of you ever had to take an SAT? What is that about? What are you trying to do? Get qualified for what? Scholarships and money so you can go to college. All of you understand what qualified means. Cliff had to pass the bar exam. John had to pass something to get his, um, where he shoots you with a needle and you don't feel no pain. (laughs) I'm not going to try to pronounce that right now. (sighs) All right. So you understand qualified. Every time I call the plumbing inspector, he has to come out and see if I'm qualified to put in that plumbing. You see, the point is, none of you are qualified. The glory is that he qualified you. He took care of what you could not. The false teacher said, let me see, did you get circumcised? So you had to go behind the curtain and show him. Isn't that sad to think that that's qualified you? For what? The point is, it's God who qualified you. Do you live your life with this understanding? Brother and sister, you would have no hope for heaven We would sit here of all men most to be pitied. If God did not in his love for no reason other than his own, you had no other means. Do you live in light of that truth? Do you understand its depth? Do 
the circumstances in your life overcome that reality in your heart and you live a bitter, frustrated life? I hope not. The point of all of this is you'd be freed to take your tongue and to praise His name in the midst of whatever circumstance you face because He qualified you for the greatest of all gifts, which is a future inheritance in the presence and the glory of Christ. Paul said it this way, I cannot count the things in this world that are struggles presently to be anything like the glory that's to be revealed in us as the sons of God. Is that the way you do it? Is that the way you do it? No matter what the doctor says, the banker says, the employer says, the politicians say, no matter what they say, no matter what comes across the newscast, no matter matter what information you get about your friends or others, no matter who turns their back on you, this truth is to grip you and anchor you in all of life. God qualified you for a future in his presence unlike any other. you got an inheritance coming. What anchor the children of Israel should have as they journeyed through a sandy or no sandy desert with no water and awful types of struggles. They're going to the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. If that gripped the hearts of those people who were faithful, carried them along in their difficulties for 40 years, what ought heaven and all the promises of God do for you in this area where we're strangers and pilgrims? This truth should anchor you, brother and sister. God has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. The past reality is that he took you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you even consider such a thought? If you'd been a POW in Vietnam, it wasn't like the jails here. You'd call Cliff and say, I don't like the way I'm being treated. Would you sue him? Guess what? In Vietnam, that didn't work. You can call him by you want. Over there where Putin puts you in prison, guess what? And you know, there's a worse prison than that. The one you were rescued from. You might say, preacher, I had it pretty good. <laughs> I was doing okay. Yeah, I'm glad God fixed me for heaven, but you know, I was doing okay. You were. You see, that's the problem. You don't know just where God got you from. You here and who are unbelieving, you're in a prison in a place that you don't even understand. It's death and a darkness. You can't rescue yourself. You can't climb over the wall. The guards are too big. And as a matter of fact, the guards don't even have to keep you there. You love being there. You walk like the rest in darkness. You see, they thought Alcatraz could keep all the prisoners. Even some escaped from there. I promise you, nobody escapes from this prison. Do you hear me? You did not and never will you escape from this prison. Only God could rescue you. He's the one that transferred you from that darkness. Maybe in your mind you don't even think it's real. You better understand it's real, real. And you need to come in contact with the understanding of just how real it was and how dark it is. Because when you understand just where God brought you from, it gives you a good hope 
and fills your lips with thanksgiving and your heart with joy. And the things of this life become what they ought to, far less in importance than that great deliverance. And transferred you where? <clears throat> to the kingdom of his son. How exciting is that? Wouldn't you like to have a king like him? Wouldn't you like to have a king that made every decision for your good? Wouldn't you like to have a king who fed you with the best of things? Wouldn't you like to have a king that measured everything he gave you and it was just right? Wouldn't you like to have a king who could defend you in every way, who could secure you in every difficulty, who could comfort you in every moment? Wouldn't you like to have that kind of king? If you're a Christian, you do. Do you think about it? Do you consider the reality that Christ is king and he rules the world and your life in particular, he's your savior. Nothing comes to you that hadn't come to him first. You see, you're not any different than Peter. When the devil came and said, I want to sift him, Jesus said, okay, sift him. But I guarantee you this, I'll pray for him. And he will not fail. Jesus prays for his people. The reason you haven't failed and turned your back on Christ is because he's prayed for you. It's not because of how much you know or how good you are. Is your heart filled with this reality? Do your lips testify to these things? Are you continually in the grips of bitterness, frustration, aggravation? The past deliverance from darkness, the future promise of the inheritance should in this life grip us in so many ways. And the focus of thanksgiving will always be with an exclamation point like this. The kingdom that we've been transferred in is ruled by the one who came and redeemed us. How do I know his intentions are best for you? How do I know when one of you come to me and say, I got cancer, my kids this, my kids that. How do I know that the king and his intentions are best for you? He cost him everything to purchase you back from the slave market of sin. That's what the word redeem means. The price was his own life, his blood. Dripped every bit on Calvary's hill. The shame that he experienced, naked and undone. His father turned his face from him, all for one reason, to redeem you. He paid the unthinkable and unspeakable price for your deliverance. Friends, these things should motivate our thanksgiving on a consistent basis. They should be the foundation of the things that come out of our lips. I'm like you. I like to discuss current events or difficulties at work or troubled employees. Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, sometimes too much. But what should I discuss more often? Things like this. Man, what about the king that loves us? What has he done for us? He says, well, he gave me some trials. Well, you know he mixed them just right, right? Yeah, he did. He did. He's doing me good all the time. He loves me in an unspeakable way. You're here and you're lost. Wouldn't you like to have a king like that? Fall at his feet, trust him, cry out in repentance. You're here and you're a believer. Be renewed in the understanding of these things. Might your life 
be lived like this. You're a fellow member of this church. Let's pray for one another like this. Amen. Yes, pray for broken bodies, but pray for this understanding. People walking around, enduring the difficulties of life with joy, delighting in the fact that Christ made them fit for heaven, and that God chose them in eternity past, and that God wants us to know His will. Amen. Wherever you're at in this journey with Christ, I hope that if you need in your life to repent, do so. If you're lost and undone, you need a Savior, see one of us. Don't leave without it. You can be delivered from darkness now. You die, you're forever there. You're forever there, and I can't do anything about it. Your mom and dad can't do anything about it. Your best friend can't do anything about it. Your former pastor can't do anything about it. You're there. Please, while you have life and breath, cry out to Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we love you. We're encouraged this morning with a way to pray. Help us pray this way. Lord, we're weak and weary. We need your strength and grace. Keep us along in the fight. Thank you for our brothers and sisters. And for this reason, help us this morning to mature and grow up into our head who is Christ. In everything, take captive our hearts, our passions, our desires. We can.